Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzler. I couldn't be more excited to have tonight's guest, photographer Elliot Landy, on the show for the entire hour tonight. Elliot is one of the first music photographers to be recognized as an artist. His images of Bob Dylan and the band, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Van Morrison, no relation, Richie Havens, and many others documented the music scene in the last 1960s that culminated with he being the official photographer for the 1969 Woodstock Music Festival. His photographs have have appeared on the covers of such magazines as Life, The Saturday Evening Post, and Rolling Stone, among others. He is the author of six books, including Woodstock Vision, The Spirit of the Generation. His new book, The Band Photographs 1968-1969, was recently published on the Backbeat Books imprint and is available at finer bookstores everywhere. With no further ado, I would like to welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour from his home in Woodstock, New York, the Matthew Brady of rock and roll, Mr. Elliot Landy. That's so nice. <laughs> Matthew Brady of rock and roll. That's, that's well, cool. <laughs> well, you know, you know, sometimes I feel like that. In those days, in order to, to do photography, you had to schlep a lot of stuff around on horseback and in wagons and set up huge tripods and big cameras and have all kinds of liquid chemistry with you and so on. And I feel like my life and career has been pretty much like that, even though I, I didn't have, even though the physical um, aspect, the, the physical particulars were changed, the, the actual um, struggling and pushing uphill all the time remain the same. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, and the other thing I think you would have in common with the Matthew Brady, the great Civil War photographer, uh, you know, photograph. Uh, you know, photoing all the stuff you did in the in, in the rock and roll world in the in the sixties and seventies was occasionally you probably had to duck a, a few incoming bullets as well. I had a few incoming bullets. You saying? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Well, you know, I that's an interesting thought. My first response is to say no, but then I think about it, and I think that's the reason I stopped. I left the music business because bullets started to come in, mm-hmm. and, and, and I said I don't want to be in front of bullets. I, I want. Um, it was always the the um, the softness of life that appealed to me. It doesn't mean it wasn't hard. It doesn't mean I didn't struggle. It just means that I felt that what I was struggling against was worth it. So when you're fighting against the the, the a, a business, let's say or people who are running, because it's not the business you're fighting, it's really people. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the big flaws in today's thinking is that we don't blame individuals for what corporations do. It's a corporation. It's not. It's the individual, it's the executive who decides to be part of that um, and who decides to act like that. And the idea of uh, the corporate shield is, is no responsibility. And that's one of the problems with society and culture today is that nobody wants to take personal, not nobody, that's not fair, that many people don't take personal responsibility for what business does. Well, you had a very interesting uh, kind of a doorway in a Bob Dylan that did, that the door seemed shut at the time, but what you were uh, photographing the tribute to Woody Guthrie at the Carnegie Hall uh, with Dylan and the band and Albert Grossman, uh, Dylan's manager, for at the time and, and for the next several years wanted to uh, uh take your fi- your camera and your film but you worked around it so let's talk about that and, and move on okay Are you, you want me to tell the funny story yeah absolutely <laughs> it's funny now um i was just starting my career as a photographer i had established my skill set and um i wanted to do something to try and stop the vietnam war so I was photographing peace demonstrations, uh, working with an uh, underground newspaper and um, not getting paid anything at all, just contributing it. And um, I saw that Bob Dylan was going to be playing at the Woody Guthrie Memorial Concert, and it was the first time he was going to appear in public for over a year. And I called uh, Bob Dylan's manager's office, which was Albert Grossman, 
uh, and got a, uh, a pass and got two free tickets. And the tickets were, of course, impossible to get. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got two free tickets, and I identified myself as a photographer and so on. Um, and then when I got to Carnegie Hall, I brought a girlfriend with me, and I got to Carnegie Hall, and the guard says, no, you can't. He sees my camera bags, and he says, you can't take pictures in here. And I said, well, I'm a official photographer. I, I am a you know, photographer for an official newspaper here. I got a police press pass and a, a letter from, uh, from Bob Dylan's manager and blah, blah, blah. And the guard says, I don't care what, you can't come in here with cameras. So uh, I, we, we went back outside and I checked half my cameras and I gave, I gave one camera and one lens to my girlfriend to put in her purse and we walked back inside and sat through most of the concert until Dylan came on. And then I took out the camera and I started taking pictures, trying to be as discreet as possible, waiting for the loud parts of the music so I wouldn't disturb anybody <laughs> as well as wouldn't be noticed. Right. Um, and I see off to the side, so so we got like eight row center seats, really some of the best seats in the house. And um, uh, I see off to the, the the far the far side of the theater by the exit door, um, this woman is waving to me with two hands, telling me to stop photographing. And I make believe I don't see her. And then she gets a guard, and he starts doing the same thing. And I make believe I don't see him. And I keep <laughs> taking the pictures. And then at some point, the guard starts to walk around the front of the orchestra to come get me. So I didn't want to make a scene, of course. And I, uh, I, I then looked over at him you know, like I'd just seen him for the first time. I said, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but I, I tried to keep sitting there, and he said, and he kept insisting that I come out. So I knew they were going to try and take the film from me. So, so I, I, took, I took the roll out of the camera, and I gave it to my girlfriend, and I said, don't give this up at all. And I put another roll in the film, in the camera, rather. And then I went out the side door, and uh, where the guard was, was telling me to go, and I'm met by probably 15 people out there. And uh, in the middle of this is, is uh, this man, Albert Grossman. I didn't know who he was at that point, but I quickly found out when I said, well, Dylan's manager gave me permission, and he said, I'm his manager. Something and he was like a that. big guy, wasn't he? He was imposing. You yeah. know, I don't know how big he was, really. I guess he was probably about the same height as me, maybe a little taller. Or, I, I don't really know, but his manner was very imposing. Big stentorian voice and a man who took control of situations. Uh, it was that type of personality. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a double alpha or something like that. Right. <laughs> Um, and uh, um, he said to me, you know, you're not allowed to take pictures. And I said, well, you know, I had permissions and so on. And then um, he said to me, give me that film. He says, you got to give up the film, you know. And I said, no, I'm not going to give up the film. And and uh, the woman who had originally pointed me out was in the back of the crowd uh, surrounding me. And uh, she's saying, um, and, and I hear her saying, um, he switched the film or something like that, or his girlfriend has the film. She Like, she saw me make the switch, right? Um, but it's kind of noisy, and there's music playing, sure. very loud, you know, some of the greatest music in the world, right? And we're dealing with this nonsense. And the place it. must have been packed. What? Oh, it was completely sold out. Yeah. It was sold out immediately. Even without the Internet, it got sold out. So every time that she starts to say, you know, she's got the film, meaning my girlfriend... I got louder, and I said, you can't have this film, just so he wouldn't hear her talking and so on. And at some point, I, I hold the camera like up to him and say, you can't have this film, because I know he's going to grab the camera, which he does, and he opens up the back and rips the blank film out of it and <laughs> says, all right, now get out of here, and, and so on. Um, but, but, and, and so he didn't like me. Uh, so um, and I had just begun making the rounds of doing music photography, um, and uh, I got an assignment to photograph Janis Joplin, who we also managed, and I, that brought me up to his office again to photograph her, and Albert um, asked John Simon to, to, like, get me out of here. He said, get that guy out of here. I can't stand him. <laughs> he didn't say that to my face, but John years later told me that's what he said. Um, and, and But then, like, um, to maybe a month or two months later or something like that, I'm photographing Janice. I guess it was probably less than a month. Uh, I'm photographing Janice at the um, oh at the Jimi Hendrix Electric Ladyland Studio on A Street, right? 
Yeah, but it was called uh, the uh, whoa, I'm blanking on the name of the club. Yeah, it was wow. a club when I was generation. Reading, yeah, it, it was generation. Yeah, yeah, when I was reading your book, uh, we've got Elliot Landy on the line. He's got a great new photo book out called The Band Photographs 1968-1969. And I was reading about that. I had been a Electric Ladyland years back somehow on a bit of a tour or somebody was playing it, but it was a club before it became a recording studio. I yes, did not know yes. that until I read your book. It was club generation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so Albert comes to me and taps me on the shoulder while I'm photographing and it's hugely noisy in there. It's a low ceiling kind of club. And, and he, he kind of waves me back to the back of the, to, to, to the back of the crowd, the, the back of the audience. And he brings me into a, a broom closet <laughs> and I, I have no idea what's going on. You know, <laughs> I, I wasn't afraid of being physically attacked. He didn't give off that vibe. Right. Know? But I didn't know what was happening. And he says to me, are you free next weekend? <laughs> and I say, well, I say, yeah, you know, I guess so. I don't know. I don't remember what I said exactly, but I wasn't. And he said, well, we have this new band that we want photographs of. And I said, oh, what's their name? And he said, I don't know. They, they, they may not have a name. They may not take a name. Uh, they're the Crackers, and <laughs> there was no name. You know, there's very, very uh, indefinite uh, answers. But what I want to say about this is that, and the reason that he reached out to me was that he had seen my photographs of Janice, and he, he really liked them, I guess. And... Um, he let go of the negativity that he had towards me, and it was really a, a, a good amount of negativity because nobody stands up to him. Nobody, you know, goes against Albert, that kind of thing. Elliot, we're going to pick this up uh, in the next segment of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. We've got great uh, rock and roll photographer Elliot Landy on the line. We're going to be speaking with him for the entire show in his time in Woodstock with the band Dylan and more after these messages. The number one source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities gay scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. The local advertisers you hear on AM 950 are the lifeblood of the station. If you find yourself regularly tuning in, or if you appreciate the diversity of content we deliver, please take the time to support our advertisers. Even if it's just to thank them for backing AM 950, your voice and support can go a long way. Help keep the station going strong while investing in our local community. Find the complete list of on-air supporters by visiting the advertisers page at am950radio.com. That's am950radio.com. This is Chad, owner of AM950, here to tell you about Snap Construction. They're experts in roofing, siding, window, and insurance restoration. They have energy-efficient products available for both residential and commercial properties. This spring, when we needed a company to take a look at a problem with our roof, I called the company I knew I could trust, Snap Construction. I've known Ryan, the owner at Snap Construction, for years, so I knew I could trust him. Don't just take my word for it. Check out their reviews online. They are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior contractor online in the metro area. Over the years, Ryan has always said the same thing to me about his work. If we build it, shouldn't we be held accountable for the work indefinitely? He backed that statement up years ago when Snap Construction was a pioneer in offering a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee on all their work. For a free estimate or general questions, call the locally owned company AM950 Trusts Snap Construction at 612-333-SNAP. That's 612-333-SNAP, or find them online at snapconstruction.com. They have financing options available. Atheists Talk is the radio show for free-thinking Minnesotans. Listen on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Every Sunday, we bring you science, philosophy, politics, and plain old fun from an atheist point of view. Visit our website at minnesotaatheists.org for more details. Tune in to Atheists Talk Radio, Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock, on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's good radio without the good book. 
Located just north of 50th in France, the Great Wall Restaurant has provided a delicious taste of authentic Chinese cuisine since 1981. Specializing in Sichuan and Peking dishes, they offer one of the most extensive menus in the Twin Cities. Favorites include hot and sour soup, pan-fried dumplings, and mushu pork with homemade Chinese pancakes. Stop by their Edina location or call for takeout at 952-927-4439. See the full menu at greatwallrestaurant.us. You're back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. On the line, rock and roll photographer Elliot Landy, who is just uh, telling us a little bit of his first meetings with legendary rock and roll manager Albert Grossman. So keep, uh, continue that thread So with Albert Grossman. Yes, so I, I, I always honor him in my mind as being able to let go of the negativity that he had towards me, and that's such an important trait in, in, in life, to be able to let go. Anytime you feel yourself being negative or disliking something, it's like, I don't need that as part of my thought mm-hmm. pattern. And certainly because he did that, he's just very gracious to do that. And of course, I'm grateful to him. But so are, I imagine, the band, and so is Dylan for the good work that I did for them and with them and so on. Um, and it was really like it deserved to be let go of. Right. <laughs> and, and so on. And he was able to do that. And I was really, and I really understood what a powerful man is. It's a man who can really go in the direction that things need to go in to have a positive outcome rather than holding on to patterns and holding on to um, certain um, um, stone stone-based ways of thinking and being. Well, there is no doubt uh, that at that time, Bob Dylan would have never in the, you know, mid to late 60s uh, achieved his worldwide acclaim if it wasn't for the bulldog that Albert Grossman was um, and uh, in representing and standing up for his artist. Yeah, I think he was responsible for changing the nature of the record business because he took control of the A&R. He took control of which songs are going to be played, how they're going to be recorded, who's going to record it, and so on, for Dylan. And I believe that he put the artist in control. And I'm not a historian in this, but I, I believe that he was the first one to ever hmm. do this. And and this really changed how, how the music, music business is artist-controlled and artist-driven and so on unlike the movie business, which is not, which is controlled by people who finance things. They have the ultimate say. But in this case, in the music business, the artist seems to have the ultimate now, say. Now, where were you? Were you living in New York City at the time when Albert Grossman invited you up to photograph uh, the group of uh, men that became the band? Yes. So he said to me, so um, uh, go up and see the guys and the band in, in, in the band, you know, not the band, in the band. And they were recording in a recording studio in Manhattan in New York City. And I was living in Manhattan at the time. And I went up and I met Robbie in the waiting room of, of the mixing, of the recording studio, whatever it was. And then um, he looked through the pictures and he said, oh, you know, these are really not what we're looking for, but I see that, that, that they're very good. Because I think I brought up performance pictures mm-hmm. for him. Uh, like that, and um, so he brought me into the uh, to the mixing room, and I believe that it was chest fever that I was listening huh. to. I walked in this wall of sound, and the introduction to chest fever um, was on the amplified studio. Uh, speakers and so on the the best the best sound you well and that magnum opus uh, uh, organ intro by garth hudson i mean it's legendary yeah Yeah. and and so that kind of blew me back out of the room i i i I was really moved by it of course (sighs) you know and then um basically i flew up to toronto and what they wanted to do was honor their parents in the 60s the, the the essence of the 60s was change 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 let's do things differently let's stop all the let's stop the wars that are happening now and have happened in the past and let's stop bias and let's stop bigotry and let's make everybody equal and the same and and it was the beginning of the environmental movement and so on and let's make let's do things right in other words and in order to do things right you have to discard what's wrong you have to discard the past 
past. And there was a lot of, of, of uh, um, thinking in the, in the 60s about against your parents. Right. You know, uh, I don't want to do the things the way my parents did because they, they messed everything up and so on. And so even to the point where people are cursing out their parents and rejecting them totally and, and disappearing and never contacting them again and stuff like that. And the guys in the band said, this is ridiculous. He said, we owe who we are today to the kind of parents we had. They, they, they cared for us. They nurtured us. They brought us up. They, they paid for our educations or whatever they did, you know. They clothed us and they loved us and so on. So we want to honor them. So they were really saying, hey, to the culture, let's not go too far with, with this I hate my father right. stuff. That was also psychology as well. You know, you have to escape the bad stuff your parents did mm -hmm. to you. And they're saying, you know, there's a lot of good things here also. Let's focus on the good stuff. So they were, they wanted to include a photograph of their, of their friend, of their family, of their parents and their relatives in the album to say thank you for, for bringing us to this point in our lives. And so that's why I was in Toronto to do uh, all of them except for Levon were Canadian. So that's where their relatives were. And Levon's parents were supposed to fly up, but they weren't able to. So in the picture, you'll see he's holding a picture frame showing hmm. his parents. And that there. was on the back of uh, uh, their first record, uh, music, from, yep, music, music from Big Pink. Music from and, Big uh, Pink. But it was on the right, inside. It was on the inside it was right. a, originally, it was a gatefold. Right. Yes. And now, was that at uh, yeah. was that at Rick Danko's uh, uncle's farm? Or? Yeah, it, it, yes, it was. Well, yes. you know, when you look back at that time, and uh, you know, geez, I was um, thirteen in nineteen sixty-eight. But uh, with along with that, you know, the, the, that whole rock and roll generation creating the new world, it was a wash in psychedelia, which really with the drugs and the whole mind expansion thing in a way it, it almost excluded the history of the family at the time. And I think that's what was interesting about starting to see some of your original pictures of the band was like, you know, if you looked at creamed Israeli gears, I mean, it's all psychedelia and bell bottoms and beads and even Hendrix. And here you have <laughs> this band, uh, four, you know, five guys, four from Canada that really started what's now known as Americana music. Um, God bless the Canadians. Embracing embracing their family. And you would not for a million years thought you'd see a modern rock and roll band doing that. So that was beautiful stuff, Elliot. So you, while you were uh, doing the, the photographs for... Uh, that were included on music from Big Pink and other rock and roll stuff, were you doing any of the other... Uh, stuff outside rock and roll at the time? Oh, yeah. I, I uh, was basically working with underground newspapers and trying to help stop the Vietnam War by showing the peace demonstrations. There were large peace demonstrations happening in New York City that got almost no coverage whatsoever, maybe a third of a column on page 8 of the New York Times when there were thousands and thousands of people in the streets and so on. So I wanted to photograph these and show them to people and try and uh, make people aware that the war was no good and there was no reason to be fighting it. We were hurting uh, both uh, uh, our own soldiers as well as the people we were attacking overseas um, and that we were just doing the wrong thing. So I was active in that. And then um, I discovered the rock and roll music by chance, really. I was walking along the street one one night after we put uh, the newspaper you know what Elliot we got let's save that for 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 the next segment but uh but I know okay. I, I was looking sure. at your website today and you've got a lot of the photos from the civil rights uh struggle Ellen Ginsburg protests and whatnot and that, is that at landyvisions.com uh, uh landyvision singular yeah. Dot com. Like television, but Landy. Okay, LandyVision.com. Elliot Landy for the yeah. whole show tonight in the Wall of Power Radio. More with Mr. Landy after these messages. The number one source of the Twin Cities gay scene is all digital. Follow Twin Cities Gay Scene on Facebook and Twitter. Sign up for the Scene Shot email blast for weekly updates and chances to win great prizes. No app is needed to view the bi-weekly web editions of Scene. It's GLBTQ Media for the mobile generation. Find it all at TwinCitiesGayScene.com. That's TwinCitiesGayScene.com. 
I'm Richie Mann with Sitka Salmon Shares, a CSF or community-supported fishery. The expression, know your farmer, is a familiar concept in the Midwest, yet know your fisherman somehow gets lost in our grocery stores, fish counters, and freezers. Industrialization has broken that connection between fishermen and consumer. Sitka Salmon Shares is reforging that connection through a sustainable, community-driven model. The world's wild fisheries depend on it. Sika Salmon Shares creates a direct line from our small boat fishermen right to your door. Learn more at sitkasalmonshares.com. Chances are after spring cleaning, you missed a spot. A couple really big spots, like your roof and siding. Run your fingers across your siding. You'll likely get a gross residue. And your roof probably has some black streaks too. Your roof and siding aren't always easy to clean, but they're definitely the most visible parts of your home that give it its curb appeal. So let Blue Sky Services clean your roof and siding. Blue Sky's safe soft wash method won't cause any damages and will make your home look like new. Right now, Blue Sky Services is running their summer special where you can get your whole house roof and siding clean starting at only $447. That's the most viewed parts of your home clean for only $447. Then mention AM950 when you call Blue Sky Services to get an additional $50 off. So get the curb appeal back on your home and call Blue Sky Services at 952-467-2447. That's 952-467-2447. Matt McNeil for Rudy Luther Toyota. Conquer the road trip family vacation. It's easy with the Toyota Sienna. The trick to road trips is to not get exhausted. And as a man who's been behind the wheel for 16-hour days, the Toyota Sienna makes those days comfortable. Roomy, relaxing, and a treat to drive, it makes the long day's drive easy. Highway driving, city driving, or country driving, you'll make it a memorable trip with a Toyota Sienna. And it fits all your gear. Test drive one today at Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Does your dog deserve food that is as wholesome as the food you feed your family? Food that is natural without artificial ingredients? At Total Dog Company, we carry Nature's Logic brand dry and canned foods. Nature's Logic pet foods are made without any synthetic vitamin mixes or other synthetic nutrients. All the goodness comes from real food. Find Nature's Logic at Total Dog Company in New Hope, right off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North and at TotalDogCompany.com. The Downtowner Woodfire Grill in St. Paul is the perfect choice for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Offering daily fresh seafood specials, fire-roasted meats, exquisite pizza, and half-price bottles of wine on Mondays and Tuesdays, except on Excel Energy event nights. Once you experience their cozy fireside dining, extensive wine list and bar, you'll be back for more. Gift certificates and private dining room for parties available. Located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking or online at downtownerwoodfire.com. You are back with Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. On the line for the entire show, the amazing photographer, Elliot Landy. Elliot, uh, at the end of the last set, you were telling us about how you got into the rock and roll uh, photography world. And you were walking along the street. Take it from there. Yeah. Um, I'd been working with underground newspapers, taking uh, anti-war, uh, taking pictures of anti-war demonstrations, and and one night we we put the newspaper to bed, and I was walking along Second Avenue, and I see this theater marquee that says "Country Joe and the Fish Light Show," and I was with uh, two other guys from the paper, and I said, "What's happening? What is that?" You know, no idea what that was. So uh, I went over to the box office and got inside because I had a, pol a police press pass. And I walk in and I see this incredible wall of, of light and hear this incredible sound from these big speakers. And it was, like, amazing to experience this. And this was, and Th it was Fillmore East, right? It's what, no, what? this was the Anderson Theater. Oh, okay. It was about two weeks before the Fillmore East opened. Okay. Because the Fillmore East uh, was on 2nd Avenue, too, I Yeah, believe. that's yeah. right. The Fillmore East is right across the street from this, but it hadn't opened yet. Okay. So these concerts, these rock and roll concerts, I don't know what was what happened before I saw the Country Joe concert, but I saw Country Joe, and then a week or two later, Big Brother and the Holding Company. I was just completely taken by, by this experience of light shows and music, 
and and at the concerts the musicians were as much against the war more more anti-war than the audience was and the whole thing was really a countercultural event and i felt that by taking pictures of these concerts which like after two or three weeks the Fillmore east opened and that's where i photographed hendrix and the doors and and um Janis Joplin some more and so on um by taking pictures uh, at these concerts, I felt like I was inviting people to become part of this new culture, of this new idea of living freely rather than living within the constraints of what what we were supposed to be, suits and ties and, and uncomfortable shoes, basically, and doing things that were not necessarily conscious things. You were um, trying to make money for money's own sake without being aware of what you were doing that for, which is, of course, as we all know, a, a super problem today. Um, and all the bad energy from that is spreading around the world, in my opinion. And I think it comes from the way people think about things. Hmm. Um, We've got Elliot Landy on the line. He's got a great book out called The Band, Photographs 1968 and 69 on the Backbeat Books imprint. So you ended up... We're kind of around the same. We're talking, you know, 68 and 69. How did you get the, the gig as the official photographer of the uh, Woodstock Festival, which you uh, put a book out called Woodstock Vision, the Spirit of a Generation, around that. Tell us about how that uh, hooked up and tell us what yeah. the hell was Woodstock like? <laughs> well, um, the book Woodstock Vision, the Spirit of a Generation, um, I first wrote in 1994, and it was published then, and then I did an interactive CD-ROM of it with Panasonic Interactive Media in 1997 that released the book and, and the CD. And then I redid it in 19, uh, 1999. Was it 99? Oh, my goodness. I should know this. Yeah. Time's flying. That's right. Yes. Right. <laughs> it was 30, yes. It, it was the 40th anniversary. 69. Two, 2009. Oh, my okay. goodness. I, I redid it in 2009 uh, for the 40th anniversary, um, and I doubled the size of it. And uh, But the name of it is Woodstock Vision, the Spirit of a Generation. And a lot of people who are not interested in the Woodstock Festival pass the book by because they think it's about the Woodstock Festival. But the Woodstock Festival is only half of it. The rest of it is really all the stories I'm telling now about uh, about the underground movement and my photographs of Dylan and the band. And it's a really good book about the, about being part of that movement in the 60s to try and make the world a better place. Um, and rock and roll music was one way of doing that because it caused people to forget who they were. It was really and what meditation does to you. When you meditate, you forget what's tying you to real-world experience, and you can go someplace else and be someplace else. And rock and roll music in those days with the concert experience and smoking grass at the concerts and so on was that kind of, of, of spiritual experience, really. It wasn't about freaking out at a concert. It was really about going through a life-changing kind, of, uh, kind of experience. So unlike Bill Clinton, you guys were actually inhaling. Totally, and that was the point of it. <laughs> Elliot, you know, what was... Now, uh, you, you asked me the way I got to Woodstock. So, yeah. so, uh, so doing that work led to uh, photographing the band and then photographing Dylan and, my wor and then Van Morrison for the Moondance album cover. And my work got pretty well known and so on. So then when, when Mike Lang, um, who, who produced the, the Woodstock Festival, uh, needed a photographer... He was also living in Woodstock, and we knew each other casually just through friends. Uh, and we, we would hang out and talk sometimes. And he, he came up to my house on his motorcycle one day and said to me, I'm, I'm producing a concert in August, and uh, uh, do, do, you, do you want to photograph it? And I said, well, who's going to be there? And he named off some of the famous bands that were going to be there. And I said, sure, absolutely. And he says, okay. That's great, and took off. <laughs> and as I, as I write in my book, it wasn't even a handshake. Right. You know. <laughs> wow. The good old days. And so that's how I got to be the photographer of, you know. And then there was another photographer, Henry Diltz, also. Sure. Who, who, who they brought on board as well. Didn't Henry so, do that classic, uh, that first Crosby, Stills, and Nash cover? Uh, Where they're sitting I, on the couch? I don't, yes. Yes, he did, right, yes. 
and some of the. Well, he's done a lot of things. Yeah, he? yeah, a lot of the early Eagle yeah. stuff. Hey, so yeah. when did you move to Woodstock? I, I've got Elliot Landy on the line, great uh, photographer. He's got a new book out called "The Band Photographs, 1968 to 1969." Yeah, when did you move to uh, Woodstock, Elliot? Well, when while I was photographing the band, um, first we went to Toronto, and then after that. Um, I went up to uh, what they called the Big Pink, Big Pink, uh, which was a house in West Saugerties, New York, and and uh, we got on really well. And they said to me, um, "Come on up anytime you want." <laughs> and so so we did the first shoot, and there were really gorgeous photographs in it. But they said, ah, "It's not really what we want. You know, it's not the right thing." One of the pictures was a photograph of the five of them sitting on a bench taken from behind right. and you see a pond in front of them and that was on the cover of rolling stone um and that was just what they were talking about because they explained that they didn't want to be uh, um a band with a fancy name like jefferson airplane right. some kind of weird psychedelic name quicksilver messenger wanted... service right yeah. right yes that's right yeah and on and on with those great names. They're all beautiful names. Yeah. <laughs> but but they didn't want that. They also felt they were such a they played such a diverse type of music that they wanted to be free to do whatever kind of music they wanted to do. And they felt if they had a name or if they were known too much, they'd be locked into doing a certain kind of music rather than free to just play music, whatever that came to them. Um, so this picture of them from the back was really perfect to what they were talking about. But they said, but then in the end, they, they felt it was a little too anonymous, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is understandable, of course. Right. Um, so, so then... So they asked me to come up a second time, and I went up a second time. We took some more pictures, and also the second time uh, after that, they said really good pictures, but not really what we want. So we scheduled the third shoot, and meanwhile, I was going back and forth. In other words, I lived in the city, and my dark room was in the city, so I would go down, I'd develop the film and make proof prints and, and bring up proof prints to show them, and then we'd talk about it and so on. So I was spending a lot of time there and really got to like Woodstock, and when I was looking for a larger place in New York City, I realized that I had more friends in Woodstock, felt more comfortable there, liked being there a lot better than I did in the city. So instead of um, getting a bigger place in New York, I took a house at the end of a dead-end road in Woodstock, built myself a dark room, and figured I would, I would be up in Woodstock three days a week and in New York four days a week or and so on and so forth. But slowly that changed around, and, and I had less and less interest in being in New York City and just began to live full-time in Woodstock. Now, um, tell us about uh, who... You had the band, you had uh, Happy and Artie Trom, two great musicians, Bob Dylan living in Woodstock, but there was, there was a handful of other uh, artists and musicians there. Can you share some of those people you got to be friends with in Woodstock? Boy... That's a surprise question. Did Van Morrison <laughs> did Van Morrison live in Woodstock for a while? Well, okay, yeah. Um, after I did the band work, he he lived in Woodstock for a short time. He moved up there, I um, and lived in a house on top of a mountain there, and it was the same house that Garth and Richard from the band had lived in for a while. And um, I guess he was recording Moondance there. Um, and I got a call from Warner Brothers asking me to go up and photograph him. Um, so I met him, and we became friendly. Didn't spend that much extra time together, but whenever we were taking pictures or looking at pictures or whatever we did, um, we had a really, really nice, warm relationship. Um, so I would go over there just to hang out a little bit every so often. I don't remember too much of it now. Did you um, ever bump into a guy, uh, my, a fellow I consider my personal Jesus? He's a, a, a guy by the name of John Martin, a great folk and jazz singer from... Uh, John from Martin what? John Martin. He's lived in Woodstock for a while, got to be buddies with Levon Helm, but just kind of a personal question. I love John Martin. Just wondering if you ever bumped him. him. By sight, I may know him, but by name, I don't recall. So, we've got Elliot Landy, the uh, one of the premier rock and roll photographers of our time, on the line from his home in Woodstock. We've got a couple of minutes left. 
And yeah. there's, I've got a thousand questions for you, but what was it like when you were photographing the band at Big Pink? Were you, uh, when they were actually making that music, was it magic? Well, they were magic. Because um, I didn't really hear the music too much. I mean, they actually played what are now known as the basin tapes for me a bit. Because um, they were making them downstairs. They had made them downstairs already. Um, and uh, so, um, but it wasn't about the music for me with them. It was really a personal connection that we all had. I felt very much at home and comfortable with them, and I was very impressed with who they were. They were very wise people. I had known a number of musicians already because of the work I'd been doing, and and to me they were very special. They were very grounded. They were they were, had gone through a lot in life, and they were very nice. Mm-hmm. They were very concerned about being polite to people and not insulting people and so on. And I was very impressed with how considerate they were. Uh, they were just as, 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 as um, um, appreciative. They were just as, as respectful towards the person in the deli who was making a sandwich for them uh, as they were towards a, you know, a record label executive. And I really found them, there was kind of a... a it was a chemistry that really works for us. And I I also stayed out of the way. Whenever I photographed, and they said to me, come on up. Even when you're not photographing, you, know, you just come up and stay here if you want. This is at Rick and Levon's house. And, and uh, um, I just felt really comfortable with them. And whenever I photograph, I stay out of the way. I make sure not to. I don't tell people what to do. And if I miss a picture, so be it. I don't ask them to do it again. You know, so so they pretty much can ignore me. I, I wasn't like a weight on their being when I was there. We've got Elliot Landy on the other line. We're going to have him on for one more set. More with Elliot after these messages on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Hello, friends. I've been talking to you about Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens, Minnesota's first green cemetery dedicated to celebrating life and protecting our environment. One of the many wonderful things they have is something called the living urn. Ashes are buried in an urn with seedlings ultimately coming back to life as a glorious tree. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Why don't you log on to the website, mngreengraves.com. Learn more about Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. See if it might be something that's meaningful for you. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com. From classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Experience cozy fireside dining at the Downtowner Woodfire Grill in St. Paul, specializing in fresh seafood, fire-roasted meats, and pizzas all cooked over an oak-burning fire, and salads and sandwiches, too. Join them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week, located at 253 West 7th Street with plenty of free parking, or online at downtownerwoodfire.com. Burger Moe's is the perfect neighborhood gathering spot before and after Excel Center events or anytime. Offering 20 fresh, never frozen burger varieties, more than 60 beers on tap, and happy hours twice daily. Burger Moe's is located at 242 West 7th Street in St. Paul with plenty of free parking and online at burgermoe's.com. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. Crazy about pets? We are too. The Pet Connection Show is a great venue for fun, informative, and creative conversations about pets. Join myself, Kathy Menard, and Dr. Nicole Parole, along with guests who are leaders in the dynamic and growing pet industry, as we discuss healthcare, relationships, behaviors, and even political issues as they relate to our pets. So come, sit, stay for the Pet Connection Show, Sundays 11 a.m. to noon on AM 950 Radio, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Total Dog Company has a great rewards program. It's called the Frequent Barker Card. You earn punches on the card based on the amount you spend, one punch for every $10. After you get 12 punches, you can redeem the card for $10 off a purchase. Everything we sell qualifies, so you get points and use points on things you really want. 
the Frequent Barker Program at Total Dog Company in New Hope, right off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North, and at TotalDogCompany.com. You're back with the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. On the other line, from his home in Woodstock, New York, the great rock and roll photographer, Elliot Landy. Elliot, at the end of the last set, you were telling uh, us about how polite the band was, which is really, as a lifelong band fan, it makes me feel so good, and that uh, how they really, you know, considered you almost, I guess, in a way, kind of a member of the band in terms of uh, your access to hanging out with them. Yeah, they, they, they said to me at some point, they said, look, we're not going to let anybody else photograph us, just you, um, because we don't want to be bothered. They didn't say this, but the idea was that dealing with press and publicity is a real, it's a hassle. You have to make appointments and strange people come up and they act strangely towards you and they don't, and they like my style of photographing. So in a sense, they, they not in a sense, but they obviously considered me a member of the group. I don't know the band, but a member of the, of the uh, people around them. The gang. Who they were working with. Yeah. So, but you know, you said to you, you said to your people, the the, uh, the great rock and roll photographer. I was never a great rock and roll photographer. I guess some of the pictures I've done of music are considered great rock and roll photographs. But I was always a photographer of people, mm-hmm. and, and 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 or or things that I wanted to share. Actually, my inspiration for f- photography was sharing something that's beautiful, and uh, that's. Uh, um, and when I was with the band, if I hadn't have liked them, I wouldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. My 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 uh, my photography strings are very tightly tuned to my heart strings. Mm-hmm. And if I don't like something, I don't take a picture of it. Um, and I just felt so positive about these guys and so positive about the music they were doing as well as the culture that we were all representing at the time, the alternative culture. Um, that I was that I photographed. Uh, that that's why my pictures come out so good. I feel because I'm really connected to the essence of something. And when, when that when, when I got tired of it after a while, uh, I had done the concert performance pictures, and I dealt with the you know the nice guys in the band and so on. And and um, I don't know. And basically, I got tired of being part of that world. It was really the the business aspects of it that really pushed me away because everything was a struggle. Not with the band necessarily. I mean, not with the band, but with the Capitol Records and so on and other and other uh, magazines and this and that. It was the business aspect. Had I been really clever, I would have I would have gotten an agent to all this stuff, but that didn't actually happen for me. Um, so I was pushed away by it, and I don't know if I was pushed away. The business ethic was part of it, but also what was happening was that my 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 art, and I use that word as a verb, really, rather than a noun. My art was getting was getting diluted and polluted, and I remember um, taking two incidents. Once I'm I'm taking a photograph, and as I'm taking the photograph, I'm thinking of what the art director wants me to do what he wants. And this was very destructive to me because my work is always involved with responding to the moment and being able to change and do whatever I feel like doing. And that's a great feeling to be able to be connected to yourself and to act on it. That was actually the goal of the 60s was let's all connect to our inner beings and and do what our inner beings really want to do. Let's be happy in life. Um, and the, the second incident was when I was uh, also taking a picture, and as I was taking it, I was thinking about how I was going to sell it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the commercial aspect came in on top of, like an umbrella, on top of what I was doing also. Well, ba- baby just, needs new shoes, right? Well, it was a turnoff to me. Yeah. I said, oh, I maybe stop liking photography. Okay. Because because I lost the connection to essence, let's call it. Um, so I, I really um, just stopped doing the music stuff. I didn't want to go to concerts, and I didn't want to get involved with record companies and get jobs and so on. And I, I took up my. It took a while. I thought I was gonna. Uh, I, I opened up what I thought was going to be um, what was it? A photography gallery and a painting gallery because I started to paint also. 
And um, I didn't want to show my rock and roll pictures, though. This was in Woodstock. I opened up this gallery. I didn't want to show my rock and roll pictures um, because I was just really tired of that. That I had done it. it. They no longer interested me. They were old stuff already. And uh, I said, well, I'll take pictures of nature. So I, I went around. I took some pictures of trees and landscapes in black and white. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of them still existing now. Really bad. I had no, it was just something, it was an artificial thing for me. It wasn't like, oh, I'm, I, I camp all the time and I see this beautiful landscape around me. I want to capture it. It was like, a, it was like an assignment in school, you know, go take pictures of nature. And that didn't work for me. Now, like from 1999 or so on, I have these gorgeous impressionist flower photographs. If you look on my website, landyvision.com, you'll see on the front page there's, there's some of the flower pictures, really beautiful stuff. So now I can do nature well. But in those years, it was terrible. So I had opened up this gallery from, from my photographs. I didn't want to show the rock and roll pictures. And, it's, and then I, I, disco- I discovered, so I was showing my paintings there, and then I discovered spiritual metaphysical books. And I was reading like Edgar Casey and the Urantia book, it's called, and, and Gurdjieff and things like that. Uh, although Gurdjieff is not one of my favorites, but he was one of the ones that I, I remember. Um, and so my, my gallery became a spiritual bookstore. And I had a reading room for people because I opened the store. I was the the store existed so people could read the information, like the I Ching and the Tao and so hmm. on. Um, and so I, I had a free reading room. You could just go in. There was one little room in the front, and go in and sit down and read. There were pillows on the floor, and just make yourselves at home. You know, I didn't have coffee though. <laughs> 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 so so. So my, my photography gallery, became my painting gallery, really became a spiritual metaphysical bookstore. And then at the same time, I had a child, and, and my wife had a baby, and, and, and my wife and baby became the main themes for my photography. That's what I wanted to photograph, was to share this. This was, my, this was the new beauty in my life that I was just discovering, and I wanted to share the beauty of mother and child. Wow. Uh, the, the beauty of innocence, the beauty of a, of a baby. But, um, so that became my theme, really, my full-time theme. So I've always, I'm not really a rock and roll photographer. I did that for about 18 months in my life. Um, but I moved on to many different genres since then, um, including, I'm going to plug this because it's worth plugging, um, doing a... Uh, an interactive music video app that I've invented. I've been pursuing this kind of uh, multimedia experience since 1970 um, and, and with a vision for doing it. And finally, I've got it in an app, and I expect it will be released in the next six to nine months or so. And I'm the major. Oh, go ahead. I have some major music content to go with it. It's a new way of playing music and video together that changes the nature of the experience, is, all, is what I can say about it. Film it has, was invented to tell stories, and music is a feeling experience. Music affects a different part of the brain. So in order to play music and film together, as I wanted to do, I had to reinvent the technology, actually. Um, so, so that's what I've done. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This show was produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Brad Canaber, and recorded at the Minneapolis Movie Institute. We'd like to thank our guest, Elliot Landy, and like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Catch New Beginnings with Freddie Bell, Saturdays at 11 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Connie Burek, co-host of Awakened Living Infusion Radio Show. Join Michelle Kitzmiller and I as we focus on all aspects of health, wellness, spirituality, and growth from a mind, body, spirit, emotion perspective. On the Awakened Living Radio Show, we will discuss stress, self-care, fear, happiness, beliefs, communication, joy, pain, trauma, and more. 
Join us for the Awakened Living Infusion radio show Saturdays at 10 a.m. Let us share with you ways to infuse vitality into life. Your Need to Know News Headquarters, the Tom Hartman Program, AM 950, KTNF, St. Louis Park, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the progressive voice.